Well, good morning, and if you'd open your Bibles back up to Mark chapter 14, if you're, if you're not there. If you're new with us, we've just been preaching our way through this book, trying to understand it as the discipleship manual that it is, understand what is being taught here about who Christ is and what he expects of us. And it's been fun to kind of follow along in the disciples' shoes and uh, kind of learn with them as they come to understand what it means to follow Jesus. I wanted to start this morning by asking this question, and that, it, that is, why, why is it that sincere Christians that love Jesus and really want to follow him so often fail, so often fall into temptation and stumble into sin, do what they know they, they shouldn't do? And I'm not just talking about the big obvious failures maybe that you hear about in the news, the TV preacher who uh, falls into some type of sin or the celebrity Christian who's caught embezzling or something like that, and we go, yeah, look at them. I'm talking about us. I'm talking about those everyday spiritual failures, those sins where, where we know better and we want to do better, we want to please Jesus, but we find ourselves messing up. We let our minds wander into those sinful thoughts that are so shameful. We act out of anger and pride, even though we, we know we shouldn't act that way. We speak with harsh or, or cruel words, and we know we're just betraying what Jesus is about. And often it's the same sin that just comes up again and again in our life. We have every intention of honoring and living for Jesus but almost without thinking about it, we find ourselves betraying him with our actions and our words. We're like, what happened? Why do we do that? Can you relate to that? I know I can. Well, why do we struggle in this way? Well, I want to say from this text today, it might have to do with this basic problem of sleepiness sleepiness. I don't know if you noticed, as the disciples here fail Jesus miserably, it mentions constantly how sleepy they are. Four times it mentions it. I think we mess up like this because we are spiritually sleepy. Think of the, the physical analogy. You know how when you're physically sleepy, it affects everything, right? It affects your, your coordination, kind of goes out the door. Your so, social skills uh, get not so good. You miss cues, get angry easily. Your critical thinking skills get wonky. It's hard to think straight. It's hard to listen to a sermon. When you're sleepy, I'm always telling my kids Saturday night, go to bed, get some sleep so you can listen and think. It even affects... Uh, you're, you're driving. I was reading stats about, you know, it's like 40,000 accidents a year attributed to driving while sleeping. And of course, it affects your physical being. There's all these studies, study after study about sleep deprivation causing cardiovascular disease and diabetes and cancer and depression and immune system issues, even Alzheimer's. Bottom line, Living without enough sleep is physically and emotionally and psychologically dangerous and unhealthy and almost guarantees dire consequences in our lives. 
And I think our text shows that this is kind of mirrored spiritually. That there's a spiritual sleepiness that is dangerous to our souls that causes us to not function well in our walk with the Lord so that we stumble along spiritually unprepared and easily fall to temptation and sin. That's what this Garden of Gethsemane scene, which is at the center of our text, is, is, uh, is kind of all about. Yes, the disciples here, you can read it and go, well, the disciples, is this about spiritual sleepiness or is it about physical sleepiness? Because they, they seem to be physically sleepy, and they are, but it's a spiritual lesson, right? We see these throughout Mark, where Jesus uses a physical condition to teach a spiritual lesson. He has physical, physical blindness was used in chapter 8 to illustrate lack of spiritual sight, wasn't it? Deafness is used to illustrate a lack of open ears to the scripture, spiritual hearing in chapter 4. Physical leprosy is used to, to, to illustrate uncleanness of, of the soul in chapter 1. The withered fruit tree with its, is used to illustrate that fruitless religion of the temple in chapter 11. The disciples' sleepiness here is much deeper than physical. So let's, uh, let's look at the scene again. Look at verse 32, and let's review a bit. It says, And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Remain here and watch. So he's asked them, to pray for him and to watch, to be spiritually alert. And then he goes off to pray in agony. And verse 37, and he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for an hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer. And he came a third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. Jesus is calling his disciples here to, to spiritual alertness. He's calling them to be watchful and aware in prayer before the temptation of the world and the flesh. Temptation which he knows is coming, but they just can't do it. They keep falling asleep until, until it's too late. Until the hour is upon him. And you know, it's not the first time Jesus has commanded this spiritual alertness. I don't know if you remember in Jay's sermon back in chapter 13, that whole apocalyptic passage, this comes up again and again. In chapter 13, verse 5, Jesus began to say to them, see that you are not led astray. It's that same word, watch, watch yourselves, be aware. Then in verse 9, he says, but be on your guard. It's the same word again in the Greek. Watch, be aware, be alert. Then in verse 23, be on your guard, keep awake. In verse 35, therefore, stay awake. Verse 37, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. 
says it over and over and over to the, them. Be aware, watch, stay awake. And it's a command. There's not very many commands given over six times to the disciples in the Gospels. This is one of them. Watch yourself. Be on your guard and pray because you're weak and temptation is all over the place. Stay awake. You basically have two big commands in this book. Repent and believe and watch and pray. But the disciples are so sleepy. You get in this passage, he comes and says their eyelids are heavy, they're sleepy. And they stumble and fall and they end up deserting and betraying Jesus before they even know what happened. Within hours. And these guys, these are the committed ones, aren't they? These are the guys that walked away from their jobs to follow Jesus. It's not like they're half-hearted. They're committed guys. Are you as committed as these disciples? You see, I think it behooves us to take a few minutes to consider their sleepiness here and see what we can learn. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at three elements of their spiritual sleepiness. Three things that three symptoms or signs you might say because the sleepy issue is still around remember in revelation 3 the church at sardis what did he say to them wake up it's still around it's right here in the church it's in us we're gonna look at three signs and the first sign of spiritual sleepiness that uh is just poised you know or puts us in a position where we're poised to fail that we see exhibited by these disciples is simply this, self-confidence. I don't know if you noticed, but the disciples are extremely confident as they head into the garden. That they're going to stand with Jesus. We see it in verses 29 to 27 there. They are very sure. Now, generally in, in life, confidence is a good thing. Self-confidence is a good thing. We encourage it in our children, right? We say, you can do it. Go for it. Believe in yourself. My mom always said that she didn't have to uh, encourage me in self-confidence, that I was just born with it. She loves to tell this story how when I was just a little teeny guy, I'd gone with her into the, the woman's bathroom, was kind of waiting outside the stall. She said she came out, and she was washing her hands, and she looked over at me, and she said I was just... I was looking at the stall, kind of sizing it up, looking at it, and she said, Carrie, what are you doing? And she said, I just looked at her and said, I could push that over. <laughs> and I could, I could, I, it, wasn't, it wasn't very well constructed. Um, <laughs> Self-confidence is good, so your children can grow up to push things over or something. But spiritually, self-confidence, confidence in our own strength is a disaster. It's part of the sleepy unawareness of our own weakness before temptation that leads to failure. Look at the scene here. Look at, at verse 26 with me as the passage starts. It says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They've just come out of having the Last Supper with Jesus. And he said to them, verse 27, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after 
I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus very clear, clearly tells them that they are going to fall away. And this isn't a kind of maybe you will. He quotes a prophecy of scripture from Isaiah 13. We had it read that speaks of the shepherd Messiah being struck down and all his followers being scattered. And clearly he's saying this is a reference to him That's why, and to his death. That's why he says at the end of it, but I'll be raised up. He says, look, I'm going to be struck. This is speaking about me being struck down. And you guys, when this happens, are all going to fall away. You're going to desert me. And notice the I in the quote. I will strike the shepherd. Who's the I there? Well, that's God when you go read it in, in, the, in the context. This will be no accident. It's going to be God's doing. Yes, it's going to be through the, the, the Romans and the, and the Jewish leadership, but it's part of God's sovereign plan. It's under his control. And just as sure as the cross will happen, as part of God's sovereign plan, Jesus says, they will fall away. It's in their scriptures. It's prophesied. And how do the disciples respond? Do they say, Jesus, we are so sorry. Thank you for warning us. Help us. What do we do? No, verse 29, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. No, Jesus. No, that's not going to happen. Maybe these guys... It's total self-confidence and bravado. I got this, Jesus. I am with you. And then verse 30. Uh, and Jesus said to him, truly. In other words, I'm telling you the truth here, Peter. Let me speak the truth to you. I'm telling you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. They all were like, yeah. Yeah, we're, we'll stand. We will die with you. They had the words of Holy Scripture. They had the warnings of Jesus, their Messiah King. But they are sure they are going to stand. They have this almost delusional self-confidence. And it's not a new thing. It's not just one freak out moment where the disciples kind of lose their perspective. It's been like this throughout the book. Remember in chapter 10 when Jesus is speaking of his death and he says to them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And what do they say? Yes, sir, absolutely. They're sure. And remember Peter arguing with Jesus about the plan of the cross? Peter rebuking Jesus because he knew better? And remember them trying to cast out a demon, but they couldn't do it? Why? Because they hadn't prayed. They're going to cast out demons with, without praying because they got this. They're going to do it in their own strength. These guys came to Christ in humility, broken in repentance and in faith, and they've continued in their following in pride and self-reliance. 
And it's brought this, this fogginess and this lack of spiritual watchfulness and prayer that will spell disaster and struggle in their lives. Because when you think you're fine, when you think you got it, you're not going to watch and pray. And of course, as always, the disciples are so real. This is, this is, this is us. We constantly struggle with defaulting into self-confidence rather than reliance upon the Lord in our Christian walk. It's the way of our culture, right? Believe in yourself, trust your feelings, be true to who you are. And he had the Northwest kind of bootstrap and do it yourself, depend on no one. And it fuels it even more. It's come right into kind of our Americanized Christianity and into the church, self-confident, self-reliant Christianity. I remember Paul Reese, our former pastor, uh, this was one of his pet peeves about modern praise songs. He would go on about it and just bemoan how the new songs were so subjective and focused on what we will do for God and how we feel towards him. Remember him standing up here singing that song, forever I'll love you, forever I'll stand. Now, I know in that song we may be proclaiming our best intentions, but it's right out of this text, isn't it? I'll stand forever. How about forever he loves us, forever he will stand? We have to look at ourselves honestly. Where is your trust as you kind of walk forward in life? Who are you really relying on? Are you relying on your committedness? I will stand. It sounds very good, but it's actually kind of dangerous thing to say. I put together this little self spiritual self-confidence test for you. A couple questions, three questions. Do you often go for days or weeks without reading your Bible and you're kind of okay with that? Do you really, do you not really work at consistent daily prayer, but rather just kind of pray randomly when you feel the urge? And you're okay with that. Is church fellowship kind of a take it or leave it for you? The average Christian, by the way, average committed Christian, the person who checks the box committed Christian makes it to church twice a month. The person who just says, yeah, I'm a Christian, maybe once a month. If you can say yes to any of those, you are way too self-confident as a Christian. You are walking around sleepy and you're ripe for major and consistent failure in your walk with the Lord because those are the means of dependence on Him. You know what the book of Hebrews says? Hebrews, uh, how, how long it says God trusts one of us to stand on our own? To not fall away if we're away from, from fellowship and from the, from the word. So how long, it's what it says, let me read it to you. Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, 
that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He doesn't expect you to make it a day without fellowship, without encouragement, without his word, without his family. So that's the first sign or, or symptom of sleepy Christianity that is off guard, that is unwatchful before the temptation of the world, self-confidence rather than prayerful dependence and watchfulness. Now, the second factor that we see here in the disciples is, uh, is basically this, not taking sin seriously or seriously enough. This becomes obvious in the garden scene here. Look at verse 32 again. Let's, let's read some of it. It says, uh, we'll read through 37. It says, And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? You can hear the, the disappointment in Jesus' voice. One hour, I asked you to pray. Watch. Imagine that you're feeling very distressed, and you call your good friends over to help you. And when they arrive, you express your, your feelings of intense distress. You explain that you've never felt this way before, and that you feel like you're, you're going to die you ask them to pray for you. And you go off to cry out to God, and you come back five minutes later, and there's snooze and they're sound asleep. You would think, man, they didn't listen. They don't, they don't get it. They don't take me seriously. And that's just at a basic friendship level. These words of distress, of ultimate sorrow, of turmoil, are, are, are words that are on the Messiah King's Lips. These are the words of the very Son of God. These are the words of the man who fears nothing, the, the, the man that can calm storms with his command, the man that can tell demons what to do and destroy them, the man who can cure disease and raise the dead. He is saying, I've never been so distressed. I'm overwhelmed to the point of death. You can safely say nobody in history has ever been so stressed. Luke tells us that he was sweating blood. And these guys fall asleep three times over. They don't get it. And why is Jesus so stressed? Sin. The consequences of sin, their sin, our sin, all sin. Jesus is stressed, not so much that he's going to physically go and be crucified. He knows that's going to happen and it's going to be terrible, but he's stressed because he's about to take the cup, he says. He cries out, Abba, Daddy, if it's possible, 
take this cup from me. If you don't know this, in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah 25 and Isaiah 25 and Ezekiel 23 and Habakkuk 2, there is this cup pictured, this cup of the wrath of God where all the sin and evil of the nations and the consequent judgment of God is poured into it. And God says he's going to make them drink it to the dregs until they stagger as Jesus is just hours from the cross, he knows the cup he's about to drink. It's the ultimate cup of God's wrath, a cup of judgment for every transgression in history. He will be pierced for our iniquities, all of them. It's one thing, you know, to, to stand before God and have to answer for your sins. That's going to, that would be horrible and terrible. But he's going to stand and answer for all of them. All the crime, all the malice, all the injury, all the evil, all the perversion, all the cowardice, all the betrayal, every sin ever committed in time, space, and history. That's what Jesus is contemplating as he prays in the garden. That's why he's sweating blood, according to Luke. He knows at the cross he's about to take the wrath and the forsakenness of hell that each one of us deserves all of it piled on him a hundred, a thousand, a million, a billion times over. That's why he prays, Father, if there is any way for this hour to pass from me, if there's any other way, but there's not. Who else could pay for our sin but a sinless, perfect man? And who else could pay for all our sin but God himself, the God-man? His life is more than enough to cover all our sin and more and bring us new life. Only Jesus, he's the only way of salvation. If you're not a Christian today, you need to understand there is no other way to deal with your sin so as to bring forgiveness and readiness for heaven to meet your holy God. No other way. If there was another way, do you think God would have sent his beloved son to this horrible death to endure this? And do you think Jesus would have done it? He says here, if there's another way, there's another way, I'm not doing it. If it could have been done by Hail Marys and good works and, and a little purgatory, if it could have been done by a pilgrimage to Mecca and daily prayers, if it could have been done by crystals and meditation and self-cleansing rituals, then we'll, we'll go that way. There's no other way. And thus Jesus says, not your will, but my will. I mean, not my will, but your will, Lord. He doesn't want to die like that. But he does it for us, for our salvation. Jesus wants his disciples to see here the seriousness, the heinousness, the consequences of sin. It's interesting that he calls them in and then he takes three of them in close and he says, sit and watch. I, I always thought before that he was just kind of telling them to watch, to be on guard, you know. Case Judas and those guys showed up, but I actually think he wants them to watch 
him pray. He wants them to see the agony. To understand the cross. To get a hold of the dire consequences of sin. And if they had, I think they might have never slept again. But they miss it, they fall asleep, and they fail him in his hour of need, and and fail altogether not long after. In verse 50, and they all left him and fled. And I think the same is true today. We don't see it. We don't really get the the depth and the absolute horribleness of our sin. We're, We're kind of sleepy about it. Our culture looks at sin as no big deal, right? Fornication and adultery and sexual perversion are just a bit of of adult fun, harmless naughtiness. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That's a slogan that's supposed to draw you in, right? Come and have a little sin vacation. We won't tell anybody. And we are so surrounded by this laissez-faire attitude to sin so that it just kind of washes over us. To quote uh, the great Pink Floyd, we are comfortably numb to it. We watch sinful acts on shows, on various screens, kind of voyeuristically uh, detached. Because, hey, I'm I'm not doing that. They are. As if we're not complicit in the very act of being entertained by it. Watching others sin or act out sin, for our enjoyment, is sin, by the way. Complicit. We're complicit in our souls. And I'm not just speaking about pornography. I'm speaking about, you know, a lot of what's on primetime television. Unfortunately, I think often, even when we're convicted of sin, we are a little nonchalant about it and quick to say, well, hey, you know, I know I'm forgiven, which is true and wonderful, but we need to stop and feel the weight and horror of our transgression. We need to be jolted out of this numb sleepiness by considering the cross Remembering the cost of my forgiveness. That's what our confession is about on Sunday. That's what our Lord's table is about. So that we are driven to be more watchful and prayerful. So that we're not asleep at the wheel in a sense and heading for disaster. So... Symptoms or or signs of sleepy Christianity where we find ourselves repeatedly failing and struggling are often too much self-confidence and a low view of sin, not seeing it as that big a deal. And finally, I would say there's one more thing we see here, and that is a tendency to lose the plot. A tendency to lose the plot. My wife is... uh, a terrible movie watcher or a terrible person to watch movies with, uh, you know, especially at night, anytime in the evening. Because as soon as, you know, you hit that play button, you may as well have slipped her a sleeping pill. 
she just immediately starts to nod and go out and and then she comes back in and she says what what's happening what what's going on who's that why are they doing that and then you try to explain the plot and what's going on and she says this is dumb And I'm like, you're dumb. No. Um, <laughs> in her sleepiness, she can't follow the plot. And the disciples are like this. They can't seem to follow the plot. What's the plot of this book? What's the plot of the gospel? What's the plot of salvation history? Where's everything heading? To the cross. Jesus has been saying it over and over again to them. He's been repeatedly explaining it, that he's got to go to Jerusalem that he's going to be handed over to the authorities, that he's going to be crucified, that it's the plan of Scripture. He shows it to them in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and they can't seem to keep track of this. It's like they, they get it for a second and then it's gone. And it's emphasized again in our text. It starts with this quote from Scripture about the fact that it's, it's written, that he, he's going to be struck down, and then it ends with, with these words in verse 49. Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. After they've seized him, and he says, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. This is part of the deal. This is part of the plan. And in between, Jesus is talking about going to the cross. He's praying about it, about that hour, and encouraging them. But they keep dozing off and then when the guards and Judas suddenly are upon them right what do the disciples do they kind of come out of their their stupor their sleep and they just start swinging Peter's flailing wildly cutting off ears right and in their foggy minds they they this can't be right at all and they're going to take things into their hands and execute their own plans. And it's disastrous. We find out in, in, in Luke that Jesus is literally picking up ears and putting them back on. And he finally yells out at the disciples, enough of this. They've lost the plot completely. They can't countenance the thought that suffering is the way of salvation, that the cross is the way of victory. In their foggy sleepiness, this just can't be right. And we're so like this. Suffering comes our way. Hardship in this world, or even persecution, and we freak out. Lord, how can this be? What are you doing? And our, and our faith is shaken, and we're stumbling We're, we just don't get it. This is the plot. Take up your cross and follow me. Remember? No, we've forgotten. We're like my wife waking up in the movie and saying, this is dumb. We flail in our own self-confidence in those moments and we struggle. We often, in our own self-confidence, try to kind of move forward like, like Peter. We try to take things in our own hands and do it our own way with our own plans. But 
But Jesus says, verse 38, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. We are weak. We must watch and be on guard. We must see ourselves. We must see the cross. We must pray and ask God to help us. But here's the the really good and encouraging news in this text. Jesus is not sleepy here. He's not surprised or caught off guard. What is he doing? He's He's praying. He's readying himself for the moment, for the worst suffering ever, for the work he must do. He's crying out to his father for help. And when the hour comes, he's ready. He willingly submits. And who does he go to the cross for? They go to the cross for courageous, strong followers who are committed through thick and thin and never mess up? No, he goes for struggling, failing, weak disciples. That's encouraging to me. And here's my favorite verse in the text, verse 28. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus knows, hey, he's going to rise, and he's going to go before them. He's looking forward to his resurrection, and he's looking forward to being with them again and leading them forward. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the work of your son, which is so different than us. Thank you that he is contrasted against the failure of the disciples, against the picture of us as sleepy. Lord, help us to be people who watch and pray. Help us to turn from self-confidence. Help us to see the seriousness of our sin. Help us to keep our eyes on the cross, not to lose the plot, but to love you. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.